Hello and welcome to Floods of Justice. We have a great episode today. Uh, we're going to continue the discussion on coronavirus and its impact on nonprofits with a special guest from New York. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5. And I want to read verse 24 where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. Bloods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev, he is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the coffee house at 2nd and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Good morning, Pastor Kevin. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, doing well. Once again, just so you know, we are not actually at the coffee house, unfortunately. Uh, we are recording from the community center here in Franklin, Tennessee, um, missing our morning coffee. Yeah, well, I, I had my coffee, uh, yes. but I, I drove by uh, the coffee house uh, a few days ago, and, and they're closed, um, so, you know, during all this, but... Uh, the owner, he's a smart guy. He's a good businessman, so he's he's putting on a new roof. Looks like they're doing some remodeling. Yeah, I saw that. So it's like, well, if we can't be open for business, let's get some uh, let's get some stuff done, and uh, we look forward to one of these days getting back to the coffee house. Yes, yes. Well, as we said in the intro, we are continuing this never-ending, it seems, discussion on coronavirus and its constant impact in different ways. Uh, but this morning, we have a, a really special situation. We have a guest from New York. Um, Kevin, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit, and we'll introduce Marie. Yeah, well, well, you know, um, there's really nothing else to talk about right now, right? But the uh, COVID-19, this is floods of justice, and we want to look at these social issues of the day. But this is the uh, this is the 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 big issue, and and uh, uh, who knows how long it's going to last? I mean, our president has extended things until um, April 30th now, um, and I assume that'll flow down to the states and and. Uh, uh, what we're in now will will continue to be in through uh, through the thirtieth. And uh, but a week or so ago, I was reading. And I can't remember where I read this article from, but I was reading an article that said um, that um, uh, as high as fifty percent of nonprofits will not survive this because funds are drying up. Now, please hear me up, up front. The most important thing about all this is the effect this has on people. And there's a lot of people who are hurting, a lot of people who are sick, you know, a lot of people who are, who are dying. But then. Uh, just the economic impact of losing your job, and and uh, you know tomorrow is April the first, um, and uh, rents are due, and and so that's you know our primary concern is people, not uh, not profits or nonprofits. But at the same time, uh, you know we work in the nonprofit world as a Franklin Community Development and Franklin Community Church, and I'm on the board of several nonprofits, and uh, and and that stat. It, it didn't include churches, but I would assume there would be a high number of churches also who may not survive this because of just the economic impact that it'll have. And so um, I reached out to a friend of mine in Buffalo, uh, New York. Uh, her name is Marie Moy. Her and she and I are in a leadership cohort together through uh, Christian Community Development. And about three weeks ago, we spent a week together with our cohort in Mississippi and uh, um, and really, that three weeks seems like a long time ago now. It seems like years ago because so much has changed uh, during that three-week um, period. And so um, I thought I'd reach out to her and uh, let her talk about, since she's in New York, which seems to be the epicenter. She's a long way from New York City, but she is in the state of New York. 
and uh, just let her kind of share some of the things that are going on there and the impact that it's had on her community and also her nonprofit. So she's the um, she's the manager of volunteer engagement for Jericho Road Community Health Center, which is in Buffalo, New York. So good morning, Marie. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing well this morning. Good. Good. What's the weather like up there? It's uh, cloudy and a little rainy, but that's normal for um, almost April. Well, so. man, that sounds like the weather here. We had some beautiful yeah. warm days, but this morning it's cloudy and rainy, and, and for us it's cold. You know, it's like in the high 40s, and that's cold for us. I know it's probably not for you, but but anyway, so I'm ready for this to get out of here and get back to uh, uh, some sunshine. But but welcome to the show, and uh, if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself and about and about uh, about your nonprofit. Sure. Um, I'm Marie Moy, and I've lived in this area for um, about 25 years, um, and I work for Jericho Road Community Health Center, which also um, started about the same time. Um, Dr. Glick and I both um, moved to Western New York at about the same time. Um, he went to medical school at UB, and then he was hoping to go overseas. He grew up in Belize as a missionary kid, and he wanted to become a doctor and treat people overseas, but he saw how difficult it was for um, people who were under-resourced to get quality health care. So he opened a private practice, which over the last 23 years has transformed into a nonprofit, which is a um, federally qualified health center. Um, so we treat anyone regardless of their ability to pay. Um, Jericho Road is in a unique situation that where he first had his office, we shared the building with a resettlement agency. So about 60% of our um, patients are from the refugee community because we want to honor them and provide on-site translation. So we um, can translate in person about 50 different languages, probably a little bit lower right now just because of um, the coronavirus, but um, we have a very high um, population of refugees coming to our clinic, and then about the other 40% are African American. Um, so we mostly treat those who are very under resourced, or, you know, and that, that's who's being hardest hit right now with the, the coronavirus. So we offer health care, we have other services that, that we couldn't find around the city to partner with. And we also run a shelter for asylum seekers. And those are the people who are just trying to uh, flee violence in their own countries and stay in the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, you've always had your hands full doing all that. But but what has happened in the last couple of weeks uh, with you know, the patients that you're seeing, uh, but also uh, just in your own offices? Sure. Um, so about... Um, because we, uh, we have some global clinics too, and we worked in places in Africa, um, that have experienced Ebola. We're very experienced in working with, um, these, um, very transmittable diseases. So, uh, we, even when Kevin and I were together the whole week long, I was getting all these emails uh, saying that they had already started, um, screening people at the doors. So this was really before. Um, we had any cases in, in Buffalo. There were lots of cases in New York City, and we just know that people travel back and forth. So we were already um, screening people um, before they came into our clinics. 
And then really by the time I even got back a week later, um, they were really reducing our services to just purely medical. Now, we didn't shut our shelter, but we have closed our shelter to new people coming in um, just because um, we're trying not to spread the um, the disease and, and the shelter itself, as you can imagine, is like there's no place to go. So if somebody gets it, the, probably the whole facility will get it. Um, so most of us who are doing non-essential um, things, meaning they're not in the front office, they're not uh, healthcare providers or our translators have been furloughed. Um, and just to try to keep us as um, fiscally solvent as possible, um, it was hard for a lot of the, especially young women and young families who depend on um, the income. Um, I'm I'm on furlough currently. I I have I was only part time, so I have another part time job, and my husband works, so we're not nearly in the case as some of the other people. But a lot of the other people, um, particularly, um, we have a lot of um, women and caseworkers who um, do translation for us. That's their only source of income. So it's been a very difficult time. Um, our HR has been as helpful as possible, helping people file for unemployment, but it's not, we're not in a position like some big companies where they can continue to pay people um, during this time um, because we just don't know how long it's going to last. Yeah. R- roughly then how, how many people have been furloughed? Probably, Probably only about, I would say, about 10% of our staff just because um, the people who did the programs was a small number anyway. Um, What I had to do was release all my volunteers. So I had about 150 volunteers that were serving with us every week, and I I had to release all of them just because we wanted to protect them um, as well as, um, you know, our clients. Yeah, you know, here in Middle Tennessee, uh, we there was kind of a, uh, you know, we had two strikes against us. We had a tornado that devastated um, yeah. parts of the Nashville area, and then and you immediately had this huge response of volunteers that go and uh, and start cleaning up. And then about the time the volunteers are going really really well, you have this hit, and so then the volunteers are the same way. It, it's just you got to cut back on that because you know you're not supposed to be in big groups. You're not supposed to right. uh, be out, and so now. Um, you know, you have people whose homes were completely destroyed and then who were immediately encouraged because so many people came to help. But now those people aren't helping anymore. And it's, it's no one's fault. It's just kind of the way it is. Um, and so that just kind of prolongs now this, this, these people who were devastated by the tornado um, trying to get back on their feet because, of, uh, uh, because now the, uh, the COVID and then, you know, just the, uh, the overall effect that it has on volunteerism. Um, you know, and, and we're doing some stuff with homeless here. And, and people call me, you know, volunteer, and I'm like, well, there's really not anything we can let you do right now volunteer-wise because we can't be in, you know, we're trying to, it's, it's kind of, it, you know, as a nonprofit, maybe you struggle with this as well as, as I do as a nonprofit and a church. Okay, we want to do the, we want to um, be good citizens and practice a social distancing, but yet there are people out there with real needs. <laughs> and, uh, right. and, and And you can't just, Say well, no. I'm going to stay in my house and not do anything. When you see all these needs there, and that right. balance of okay, I want to go out and help, and uh, but knowing that when you go out to help, you're opening yourself up to the possibility of 
of um, of getting that of getting that disease. And and if and you guys being in healthcare, you know Jericho Health Center, I think are even more so. So how have you guys tried to manage that? That um, okay, we got to meet these needs, but at the same time we have to protect ourselves. Right. Well, it's interesting um, here. Um, you know, the we have a medical school, and so they're graduating those medical students early so that they can go to work, so that they can, you know, I'm not sure what this, if they're actually able to hire people, but they are um, taking those kind of volunteers, people who are newly out of medical school as well as retired um, um, healthcare professionals so that they can um, be ready. We're not really at the place yet, but I think that we could be like in New York City where um, the people are on the front line, they're now sick and they need replacement. Yeah. So um, that's where we are too. You know, we have had about um, 13 of our staff come down with COVID-19. Um, there could be more um, just because of the lack of testing in our county. Um, we ran out of tests. It's not as if they wouldn't do them if they had them, but we don't have enough tests to go around in the state of New York and particularly um, the places where we have a high incidence of contamination. So, um, you know, they have numbers out there that say confirmed cases. Like I'm reading the newspaper from this morning, there are 414 confirmed cases um, in Erie County. Um, actually, I think 443. Um, but I think that it's probably much higher than that. Um, so people have shifted when, like you asked about volunteers. Um, I released all my regular volunteers because they were doing direct service. So now uh, what we're trying to do is support those people who've gotten sick. So like I said, we run a, a shelter for asylum seekers. A couple of the families tested positive. And so we're trying to keep them as separated from the rest of the population as possible. Um, we also had some very high-risk individuals living in the facility, and we moved them to another location. So we're using volunteers to just help feed them. Um, you know, we um, can supply food, have people taking food to both the people who live in our shelters as well as the people in our staff who have come down with the virus because they can't go out to get any food. Um, we've also have had um, volunteers making a mask for us, as well as head coverings and, and, um, and gowns. Um, we haven't run out, but we, have a, we think that we will. We don't expect the peak um, to be here in Buffalo for another a couple of weeks. Right. Well, Marie, we're going to take a quick break here just to hear from our sponsor. But when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation and kind of look towards the future on what uh, what this looks like for your nonprofit specifically and others that are out there. The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at Second and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of 2nd Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. 
So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. So, Maria, I'm not sure what the split is financially with uh, with your organization between governmental assistance and grants versus individual donors. Um, but what has, uh, you know, if you're in that circle there, what what's kind of the uh, the diagnosis of of how funds are trickling in, or where it's where it's falling short, and where the future of funding for your organization might be going. Um, most of our um, funding comes through insurance, um, even though we are a um, a federally qualified health center. Uh, probably about ninety nine percent of our patients. Um, have some kind of insurance, and that's partly because we live in New York State, so it's not necessarily federal insurance that they have, but they have New York State insurance. Um, so the other shift that we made was um, to doing these um, tele, whatever, virtual um, checkups. So if people had visits that were scheduled or well visits, uh, we've moved them to doing virtual visits, and we can bill for them. So about 40% of our visits now um, in the last week have been um, via a screen. Um, you know, most people have at least, you know, some kind of smartphone, and um, we can do it that way, which has really helped us um, be able to, like, feel better about being able to sustain our organization. Um, and then the other thing is, um, we have been waiting for more than a year for the state to allow us to open our pharmacies. We built um, inpatient pharmacies at two of our sites because um, some of our patients need translation. So sending them with a script to the local pharmacy, um, the pharmacist wouldn't be able to tell them how to take their medication because there isn't a translator for 30 different languages at every pharmacy, Right. So um, we have been waiting for just approval. Our shelves are all ready, and we haven't had the inspection, but I think they're going to fast-track it so that we can actually dispense um, out of our pharmacies. We'll greatly um, be able to support our organization. Um, we also um, are very appreciative of our um, our. U.S. House of Representatives, um, Brian Higgins, who really um, rallied for us and helped get some um, funding um, to support our clinic, just knowing that the our patients, um, all the federally qualified health centers in our area, there's three of them here and in Buffalo, but we're all treating people who are under-resourced, but these people are also the ones who have to go to work. Um, for a living, right? So they're in these essential jobs, their service entries, you know, service industry jobs that they don't really have a choice or, you know, the privilege to say, oh, I'm not going to go to work because I might get sick. And so they're going to have a higher incidence. The poor are going to have a higher incidence of this virus because they don't have the agency just to say, I'm going to stay at home. Um, so, uh, particularly those people, I can't imagine that they have been let off work 
they have to go to work, but then they're also coming down with um, the virus in higher numbers. So um, part of us for, for just putting some people um, uh, laid off momentarily helped us, um, but also just um, I'm thankful for the church um, connections that we have to like um, be there in the gap. We're, uh, we normally have a fundraiser in June um, for our global clinics. We run four global clinics and that um, fundraiser usually raises in the amount around $400,000 to support those clinics for the year. Um, we're going to have to cancel just because um, of the coronavirus this year and because we're going to be doing some local fundraising for our clinics. So we're just counting on God to fill in the gaps. We're counting on um, donors to be generous, to realize that, that, that investing in um, health care for the vulnerable people in Buffalo as well as the vulnerable people in our clinics in Africa and um, in Nepal is worth where they should put their money. Yeah, if what's what's a website that you have? Like, if there's anybody who's listening who would like to donate um, to your organization, it's um, our initials. So it's J R C H C dot O R G. All right, uh, J R C H C H C. Yep. Okay. Community Health Center. All right. We'll so Jericho Road, which everybody's probably familiar with. Yeah. Well, we will yeah. we will put the oh. link in our show notes so that, that people can go Thank to it you. to make donations. Yeah. I think the concept of uh, essential is kind of interesting because you've got you know obviously uh, your organization is is highly essential when we're dealing with people's health and that was that was your mission all along, and then you know other businesses organizations get deemed non-essential in this and they're asked to to close, but then for those people that are are working for that, there's an an essential nature to it that they go, well, uh, I mean, I, I know my business may be categorized as non-essential, but feeding my family is essential to me. And, and they're kind of in a, in a bad situation. You guys have any thoughts on, on how to respond Absolutely. to the variety of organizations? Yeah. You know, in our, in our community that we work in, uh, a lot of people um, work in uh, fast food restaurants um, and that kind of thing, and they have been hit really, really hard. We, I don't know what yep. they're doing up in New York, but here, uh, Marie, the restaurants can still stay open, but I don't know of any restaurant that is allowing um, in-room dining. You know, it's it's all carry-out. Right. That's the only thing they can do, carry-out. And so their waiter staff has been cut cut way down. Um, you know, you don't need as many cooks. You don't need as many, um, you know, you don't need as many of anything, and so people or people who have those type of jobs are losing those jobs, um, yeah. which means they probably didn't have health care anyway. But if they did, they don't. You know, we're Tennessee is horrible. We're way down the bottom of the list. Um, as, you know, we're we're uh, where we haven't accepted government funds, and so our Medicaid is not what it should be. Medicare, we don't have like a state insurance. Now, if you're you know if you're chil- if you have children, children uh, can get. Um, on the, the state insurance, but there's lots and lots and lots of people who are uninsured in Tennessee. And, um, and then, but then also they're the ones that um, I think as this thing continues, will be in a higher risk area of getting the, the COVID-19. 
it makes no sense in our country that we have tied insurance to jobs. And so then when people lose their jobs because of something like this, they no longer have insurance for if they actually get the virus that has caused them to lose their job in the first place. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just this this accumulative effect of uh, uh, of the poor, and th- then that affects you know how nonprofits. So many um, nonprofits are the ones like your organization and ours and other ones are the ones that are out there serving the people who have the needs. Um, but yet, if that funding dries up, then we then you can't you know you, you can't you can't meet those needs, and so it just becomes um, a bigger and a bigger and bigger of an issue. Uh, you know, from right. that. But go ahead, Mary, your thoughts on that. Absolutely. You know, um, not only that is that a lot of the, the working poor are working multiple jobs, which means they're only part-time and they're not getting insurance. And on top of that, all our schools are closed, which means now you also are in need of childcare. Um, we do have some child cares open for essential workers, but, you know, they're going to give child care to the health care providers or they're, they're going to give child care to the fast food workers, right? And so the, the working poor are just, like, trapped um, in not what do you do, you know? Um, and let alone the pressures of, like, being um, you know, inside your, our kids, um, from the Buffalo school district are supposed to be doing their schoolwork. Um, they still are saying that they're going to grade their schoolwork and they're sending kids home with all this work where, um, most parents are not teachers. They're not, you know, and they're not getting paid to teach their kids. So we're really in, um, bad cycle a bad spiral for people who are already um just on the edge of of not making eight ends meet right right um, and, and you know the lower you have to think too a lot of the people in the uh in the poor neighborhoods they don't have um you know the internet access to even do the school work they don't have um computers in their in their houses, they may have cell phones, but that's that's hard to do. And like our community center, I'm sitting here looking at, uh, you know, three really really nice uh, Macintosh computers that uh, people could come and and work on. But yet you can't open the community center because you're not supposed to have a crowd in here. So, so it's this, it's this. You know, you're literally stuck stuck in a rock between a rock and a hard place of how do you meet these needs, um, and. Uh, and and then you know if funding starts to dry up, then you're even more so. How, how can you meet? How can you meet these needs? It's a, it's just a, it's just right. a tough time, and all nonprofits are, are feeling this. And that, like you, you know, you you said your fundraiser has uh, been canceled, and and uh, I'm on the board of several nonprofits, and we've had fundraisers uh, canceled, and and uh, some of the fundraisers are like the biggest fundraiser of the year for that organization, and so now you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, X number of dollars, and how do you how do you make that up? You know, because uh, right. you know, if, if your if your organization is dependent on grants, um, well, then unless it gets really, really, really bad, those government grants will 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 continue on. But uh, but the private dollars, and then and then what I Marie, Marie, what I find myself as a pastor and also leading a nonprofit is this struggle of 
okay, there are people out there who have incredible financial needs, and so I don't want to ask to give money to to either the church or the nonprofit because they're trying to feed their family. And so it's like, you know, I, 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 that balance is tough because now we got to do fundraising, but yet you know that, that people um, aren't able to give like they, like they could just a month ago. Right. You know, you know and yet, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, on our uh, Facebook for our cohort, um, Ryan had asked about um, redistribution mm-hmm. and it's one of the components of Christian community development and I think that this is one of the times where we're going to have to see it in action and even in my role as a manager of volunteers I see that as redistribution of wealth right um, people who volunteer are those who have margin mm-hmm. um, both financially and with their time and I'm redistributing that wealth that people have to others. And I think that in times like this, you know, that's where Christians are going to have to really look hard at their own finances and, and see what the margins that they have that, that they're supposed to be giving to the poor. Um, I know that we all feel a little strapped, but I think that that's a false um, sense of scarcity. I don't think that there's scarcity among God's people. And, um, you know, I've been on calls this week, and all the people that I've been in these calls with, we're doing okay. You know, we're we're, um, free of symptoms. We have enough food. I'm thankful to God every day that my is on and I have water and um, there's people who don't and I think that we have um, this time is actually a, a good thing for us to see the things that we don't really need you know I love my sports I'm mourning you know the final four this weekend and um, and yet that's not essential to my life um, what's essential to my life is other people. And um, I think that we can all like take this time to self-reflect and see that um, where we're putting um, our treasure and maybe we need to make some changes in, in how we are good stewards of what God has given us. Well, Marie, I don't think you could have ended the podcast better. Those are Excellent final words, um, some positivity, positivity moving forward and putting things in priority, and where do you hold your treasures? So thank you, Marie, for, uh, for joining us on this episode of Floods of Justice. Um, we would love to have you back after the, after the dust settles on this and, and hear about all the amazing things that have happened and are continuing to happen with your organization. Um, join, ever, join us next time on uh, Floods of Justice signing out. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.